Standing on the banks of the River Shannon in Limerick City, it's not obvious that it was one of Ireland's transport hubs in the years up to and including the famine. Today, the main landmark on Harvey's Quay in the city is Dunn Stores. But to many Limerick people of a certain age, the area is still known as Spates, a name that comes from the 1800s when a family named Spate made their fortune importing timber from Canada and transporting thousands of emigrants to the Americas. What's not so well known is a shocking and harrowing incident that happened in 1835 on board one of the Spate's ships, the Francis Spate, named after its owner, on a return journey from Canada to Limerick. To Francis Spate, Esquire, Falmouth, 8th of January, 1836, dear sir, it is with the greatest reluctance that I can bring myself to tell you that your fine ship is lost and which I am heartily sorry for. This letter, written by the captain of the ship, Timothy Gorman, appeared in the newspapers at the time. We left St. John on the 24th of November and on the night of the 3rd of December the ship upset and turned bottom up. On getting the mast cut away, she again righted, but with the loss of three of the crew. Three of the crew drowned, and supplies on board were lost, leaving the remaining crew of 15, along with a passenger, adrift at sea without any food for over two weeks. We were then left in that dreadful state such as tongue cannot describe until the 22nd when, not being able to endure suffering any longer, Pat O'Brien, a boy, John Gorman, cook, Michael Bain and George Burns, apprentice, died. The newspaper article included this note. Here we withhold, at the desire of Mr Spate, some shocking facts in connection with the dreadful occurrence. But what exactly happened on board the ship, the Francis Spate, that was so distressing that the details were withheld? The captain decided that in order to save the remaining crew from dying of hunger and thirst, that one of the crew would have to be killed to keep the others alive. It's a strange and macabre story that saw a very unusual custom come into play. The custom was established that if it was done fairly and in a case of necessity, then it was legitimate to eat someone to ensure your own survival or the survival of the wider crew. And the ship, the Francis Spate, became infamous for an incident of cannibalism where four of the crew were eaten by their own crewmates. From RTE Documentary on One, this is The Custom of the Sea. The sailing ship, the Francis Spate, was registered in Limerick in May 1835. Built in Durham earlier that year, it was 108 foot long, 368 tons, with two decks and three masts. The newspapers described it as the grandest ship Limerick had ever seen. The Francis Spate is a beautiful new ship, over six feet high between decks and having been built expressly for the Canada trade, will be found one of the most superior and fast sailing vessels ever offered for emigrants. Francis Spate himself was a local magistrate and leading merchant in the area. Well, Francis Spate lived between 1790 and 1861. 
Dr. Matthew Potter is curator of the Limerick Museum. And his father had been a small landowner in County Clare who had fought in the American War of Independence. Francis himself was born in Clare, but he married a lady called Patterson, whose father, James Patterson, was involved in steamships. And from 1812 onwards, Francis went into partnership with his father-in-law, Patterson, and established a shipping company at Sarsley Street in Limerick. Of course, Ireland in 1835 was part of the United Kingdom. Now, Francis Bate, of course, had a lot more business interests than um, shipping. He was also a very significant merchant. He was also very much involved with importing timber to Ireland from the British Empire and specifically from Canada. Of course, one of the main functions that Canada served for the British Empire was that it provided a great deal of timber, which was used to build ships, because most ships at this period were still made of wood. Arlene White is chairperson of the Killaloo Ballina Local History Society and has researched the Spate family. He was supposed to be an, an enterprising young man and in the 1820s he kind of got involved in the emigration trade because he saw that the ships were going out in ballast or empty and he saw an opportunity. He knew a lot of Protestant landlords in the area and at that time, I mean, it was pre-famine but there was still, still a lot of issues in Ireland at that time with tenants that couldn't pay their rents and landlords were kind of looking for an option really to get rid of a lot of them, even, as I say, before the famine. In the 1820s and 30s, Francis Spate built up his fleet of ships. He started this business, basically, of sending emigrants out to Canada and the USA, charging either the people that were travelling or the landlords. The landlords sometimes would gladly pay their fare to clear their estates. And then basically they would drop them off in either the USA or Canada and come back then with the with the timber. So it was a win-win situation for Francis, really. He was making money on both sides. One of the first quotes I found when I started into the research on him was saying that he found the failure of the potato crop to be like a blessing because it allowed landlords to, to clear their estates of, of the poor tenants that couldn't give them money. And from that point, I kind of thought, God, <laughs> not, you know, he's a businessman through and through, and that's it. There's nothing only business, you know, there's no personal side of this. On Saturday, the 12th of September, 1835, the Francis Spade ship left the Limerick Keys on what was to be its ill-fated journey. The captain of the ship was Timothy Gorman, a master mariner in his 40s from Kilrush, County Clare. The ship's captain, uh, Gorman, was a fairly experienced sea captain and sailor by this stage. This is historian Dr Richard McMahon from Mary Immaculate College, Limerick. He would have worked his way up through different levels in shipping and the Francis Spate would have been one of the bigger ships on which he was in command of. Uh, so he's a fairly experienced, fairly well-established figure within Limerick shipping by the mid-1830s. And he's directly employed by Francis Spate. So when Gorman sets out, he's doing so from a position of relative confidence, I would think. He knows the routes, he knows the procedures, he knows the sea, he knows the risks. And risks there were. Limerick historian Sharon Slater. In the 1830s, it was a huge risk on your life to be a sailor because there was a lot of shipwrecks, a lot of diseases. So 
most people who were sailors were adventurers. They had to have been because it wasn't an occupation for the faint-hearted. William Griffiths, Patrick Cusick, George Burns. Captain Gorman recruited the bulk of his crew of 17 for the Francis Spate from his hometown of Kilrush, County Clare. Patrick Behan, Michael Behan. And among the crew were three men with the surname Behan, possibly brothers. And many of the men were tough and experienced mariners, like the ship's carpenter, Thomas Crean. So the men, they had to be strong, they had to have extremely strong hands, especially, and extremely strong arms to be able to hoist sails, large, large sails to be able to hoist them and run. You had, they were extremely fit to do what they were doing. They had to be independent. They were so far away from their families because so, it would take months and months and months to travel these journeys. So you wouldn't want to be somebody who got homesick very easily if you were going to be travelling for months across the ocean. 14-year-old Patrick O'Brien was the youngest member of the crew. Patrick O'Brien, of course, is in many ways the exact opposite. He's 14. He's just been apprenticed for the first time to Gorman in September. So he has no experience of the sea. He was the son of a widow from the Thomangate area of Limerick City and he earned a living at the Keys by unloading timber from ships arriving from Canada. He is going into an unknown world for him. The evidence from the time suggests that there were no passengers aboard for this leg of the journey. This was the Francis Spate's second ever voyage. On its maiden voyage the previous May, the ship, then also captained by Gorman, brought 219 emigrants to Quebec, Canada. Captain Gorman's well-known attention to the comfort of the passengers who sail with him will render this ship a desirable conveyance for those who may be disposed to emigrate. But conditions were far from what was advertised in the newspapers. Gorman, he's probably not the best person to travel with. At, at one point in Quebec, the authorities complain that he's not bringing adequate provisions on board for those passengers who are travelling over with them and those migrants who are travelling from Limerick to Quebec. Records from the quarantine station in Quebec show that many of the young passengers died not long after arrival. Word of these deaths, and others like them, did not make it back to Ireland. On this second voyage from Limerick, Canadian records lead us to believe that the Francis Spate sailed directly to St John, New Brunswick, a hub for timber on Canada's eastern seaboard with access to the Atlantic. On the 25th of October, after a journey of 43 days, the Francis Spate arrived safely in Canada. So why St. John? There is white pine, uh, you know, along the Ottawa River and in Upper Canada, Ontario in those days. Professor Reiner Baer of Cornerbrook University, Newfoundland, specialises in maritime history. Initially, and partly because it was closer to Britain, New Brunswick was a major source of white pine. Uh, so St. John and the St. John River Valley becomes uh, an increasing focus. So it exploded because of the timber trade. While the crew of the Francis Spate entertained themselves during their shore leave in the port city of St. John, 
A young Canadian man with a sense of adventure called John Palmer was contemplating travelling to Ireland aboard one of the many timber ships that docked in the city. He later wrote, I had heard much of foreign countries and had long felt a strong inclination to visit them. And although I had read of the narratives of the surprising adventures of sailors as they recounted their many hairbreadth escapes, it had but little effect to deter me from an attempt to adventure abroad, even at the risk of my life, to see the world. Others, I argued, had been and returned in safety, and why not I? So early in the morning, the sailor likes his On the 24th of November, after a month ashore in St. John, New Brunswick, the Francis Spate, with its cargo of timber, set sail for Limerick, captained by Timothy Gorman and his crew of 17 men. We believe that Canadian John Palmer boarded the ship as a passenger for the return journey. The ship sailed the 24th of November from St. John, New Brunswick. Historian Reiner Baer. So it obviously has to sail around the Bay of Fundy before it heads out to sea. Decent weather for the first couple of days. And then on the 3rd of December, they find themselves in a gale. The problem, and in part it was because of the tremendous supply of timber, and in part probably the greed of the merchants and, and the captains, they used to pile timber onto the deck as well. What happened next has been documented in various sources, including two accounts by men who were aboard. The name of the man who later gave an account that appeared in the Limerick Star newspaper is unknown. The headline reading, The Wreck of the Francis Spate, harrowing narrative as related by one of the crew. At three o'clock in the morning of December the 3rd, an alarm was raised by a cry and confusion on deck. This was nine days into the voyage. In this description, through the carelessness of the helmsman, you know, whether it was a rope wave uh, is unclear, but it ends up uh, within less than an hour that the ship's on its side, right? It's on its beams. So the greater part of the crew saved themselves by hanging on to the rigging. Patrick Cusack and Patrick Bean, however, were drowned in the forecastle, and William Griffith, the mate, in the after cabin. The captain, and a man named Mulville now got to the fore and mainmast and cut them away. The mizzen topmast went with them over the side and the ship almost immediately righted. But they had to lose the masts because they were broken and dangerous. Historian Sharon Slater. So the remaining crew were there with no food and no water and trying to figure out how they were going to survive. They try to find a dry spot on the ship, but in fact they, they end up standing ankle deep on the wreck, uh, and it's a winter's night, and the sea uh, continues to roll over the ship. You know, this is a very perilous position that they find themselves in, and there's no fresh water left on the ship. The wind continued to howl and the gale continued to roar and the remaining men gathered into the captain's cabin. Even here, so deep with water, a dry plank could not be found on which we might lie. Our only rest was by standing close together, huddled up and leaning against one another. 
the crew of the Francis Space were now stranded in the vast ocean. Floundering in these freezing conditions was a near death sentence in itself. So they look out for some other vessel passing, and most of these vessels sailed along similar routes, so, you know, in part be as a way of protecting each other. At 10 o'clock the next morning, just seven hours after the wrecking, the crew spotted a ship in the distance. But she stood far away beyond the reach of signal and was soon out of sight. That day and the next passed away without the slightest change in the weather. On the third, it began to moderate, during the whole of which period we remained standing in the cabin, leaning against one another or against the ship's sides, unable to take rest or sleep. A day passed, and then another day. We now set about endeavouring to make our condition more supportable, and the first object was to provide some dry place on which to rest our limbs. With some planks and sails that were within reach, the crew managed to build a shelter in the cabin, raised up from the waterlogged deck. This gave us room above the water to lie down, and we were now free from wet, except when the sea ran aft from the bow. To prevent which, a breakwater was contrived in front of the cabin with a piece of the mizzen topmast and some loose boards. Finally, on the 6th, so we're talking three, four days of this storm, the wind uh, moderates, no food, three bottles of wine that they drink. Some rain, they try to collect that rain, uh, but there's not enough of it. Some of the men, when it rained, held out their handkerchiefs, and when these thoroughly soaked, squeezed the water into their mouths, or sometimes into their shoes, from which they greedily drank it. Others mopped the decks, or whatever places it chanced to lodge in, free from the brine. Then the rain itself stopped, and they were literally not only starving, but uh, becoming severely dehydrated. Seven days after the wrecking, the crew of the Francis Spate spotted another vessel four miles north and hoisted a flag on what was left of a sail. The day was clear, and they were convinced they'd be seen, but the ship sailed on and was soon out of sight. You know, the description here from one of the crew survivors, some few endeavoured to eat the horn buttons of their jackets, uh, the only substitute uh, for nutriment which occurred to them. Uh, there was no means of taking fish. They watched as the birds flew by. There's no way that they could catch them. Their sufferings increased, and according to this uh, one crew member, uh, they became angrier with each other and also more selfish. And they started to push aside those uh, who were the weakest among them to secure uh, the best position against the wet and cold. It goes on for about 16 days. Historian Richard McMahon. When the captain, I think, increasingly realises uh, that their chances of survival are becoming slimmer and it's decided to follow, if you like, the custom of the sea and to draw lots to see if a member of the crew can be sacrificed to feed the other members on board. Adrift at sea, without food or water, the crew were slowly starving to death. Cannibalism, curiously, was widely accepted as a practice at sea in the case of absolute necessity. 
So in a situation where someone had to eat someone else or indeed kill someone else and then eat them at sea to survive, the law seems to have turned a blind eye through much of the 17th, 18th and through much of the 19th century. So it was accepted that in a situation where you had no other means of survival, you could resort to cannibalism at sea. When it became clear there were no alternatives, the ship's captain, Timothy Gorman, believed he was doing the right thing by following this custom of the sea. According to one account, he addressed his crew, saying, We are now such length of time without sustenance that it is beyond human nature to endure it any longer. We are already on the verge of the grave, and the only question for us to consider is whether one or all should die. That at present it seems certain that all must die unless food can be procured, but that if one dies, the rest might live until some ship comes in view. And this is where attention turns to the apprentices, and in particular four younger members of the crew who have no family, who have no children or wives to support, and they're singled out as candidates to draw lots, which again would have been the the established custom, to see who will be effectively eaten. This address was received by the men with a unanimous cry of approbation. At least several voices were heard to exclaim, "'Tis right, very right, very fit it should be done, and none to object except from the boys, who all cried out against the injustice of such a proceeding. 14-year-old Patrick O'Brien, in particular, protested against it. Asserting that their lives were as dear to them as if they were men or married, and that unless the lot was drawn fairly all round, they would not submit. Now there's a sense in which O'Brien himself was not a popular member of the crew. Uh, that, That sense comes across in the evidence and may possibly have been singled out. But he plays a crucial role in the drawing of lots. He goes on his knees. He's blindfolded. He draws lots for each of the four young members of the crew with no family ties. And Patrick O'Brien drew the shortest straw. Now, there has been something said that it was rigged. Local historian Arlene White. First time on the ship, you know, he was the the son of a poor widowed woman. You know, he was less important than the rest of them, I suppose, um, is is kind of the, the feeling that you get and that it was rigged so he would get the short straw. Another account of events was given by Canadian John Palmer, who boarded the ship as a passenger in New Brunswick. He described Patrick as being reduced to almost a skeleton at this stage and looked on in horror at the events that were unfolding. My blood chills at the bare recollection of the heart-rending scene that ensued when the fate of this poor unfortunate lad was made known to him. The evening of the 16th day since the ship was wrecked. O'Brien, now roused and driven to extremity, seemed working himself up for resistance and declared he would not let them. The first man, he said, who laid hands on him, to be worse for him, that he'd appear to him at another time, that he'd haunt him after death. O'Brien then took off his jacket without waiting to be desired, and after telling the crew 
If any of them ever reached home to tell his poor mother what had happened to him, bared his right arm. So they cut his wrists, but because of, after 16 days of cold and starvation and dehydration, there was very little blood flow. So they had to bring the cook from the, the ship's kitchen out to cut his throat. John Gorman, the cook, initially refused, but the captain told him it was his duty. And the other sailors said that if he didn't kill O'Brien, he himself would be killed. The horror-stricken man over and over again endeavoured to summon up hardihood for the deed. But when he caught the boy's eye, his heart always failed him. Their cries and threats were, however, loud for death. He made a desperate effort. There was a short struggle and O'Brien was no more. O'Brien's blood was caught in the bowl that was used earlier to collect the rain, then immediately served to the men, but a few of them refused to take it. They afterwards laid open the body and separated the limbs. The latter were hung over the stern, while a portion of the former was allotted for immediate use. A gnawing hunger came upon us all when we saw even this disgusting meal put out for us, and almost everyone, even the unwilling boys, partook more or less of it. Some of them had been drinking salt water to survive, so people became increasingly dehydrated, you know, and, and the impact of salt water, of course, uh, is severe dehydration at the point that your organs stop functioning. Uh, but you also can suffer delirium. And so several of the crew were described as going insane. The cook, John Gorman, began to rave. And as his death was approaching, his throat was cut and his blood drunk. The same evening, Michael Behan and apprentice George Burns were so violent that they had to be tied by the crew. George Burns was eventually bled to death, just like the cook. These particular members then, who are also essentially cannibalized, right? So there's then two of them, uh, in addition to the cabin boy, who were uh, essentially executed uh, by having their throats cut. And Michael Bean died suddenly, and then became the fourth member of the crew to be cannibalized. After 25 days on board the Francis Spate, and 16 days after the wrecking, John Palmer described his own state of mind. As regarded myself, although in body exhibiting the appearance of a living skeleton, yet I bore my sufferings with a great degree of fortitude until three days previous to that of our deliverance, when it was my fate, as I was informed by my shipmates, to become delirious. What had started as an adventure of a lifetime had turned into his worst nightmare. When restored to my reason, I recollect that while I remained unconscious of my situation, all appeared like a dream. I imagined myself at home in the presence of my affectionate parents, brothers, sisters, and company, but confined to a sickbed, a prey to a burning fever, and tormented with most intolerable thirst. John Palmer felt he was losing his mind, and things on board the wreck began to get even worse. In his account, Palmer describes how sharks had begun circling the boat, feasting on the bodies of those who had died and had been thrown overboard. 
but soon there was a glimmer of hope. On the 22nd of December, 28 days after leaving New Brunswick and 19 days after being wrecked, the crew of the Francis Spate spotted a ship, who this time spotted them. And of course, famously, the captain of the ship is reputed to be waving a leg to draw attention to the Francis Spate and to bring the other ship over to rescue them. The ship, the Angerona, had left St. John's, Newfoundland some days earlier. It found the Francis Spate ship waterlogged and without masts in the middle of the Atlantic, at about a midway point between the east coast of Canada and the west coast of Ireland. The rough seas made it dangerous to go aboard, but a smaller boat was launched by the ship's captain, John Gellard. And that's when the Angernora, coming from St. John's, Newfoundland, uh, encountered them and at uh, some risk uh, to themselves, the cabin and another crew member come and rescue the survivors. They were described as wretched creatures, right? They were described as, uh, you know, virtual skeletons. You know, their appearance was described uh, as heart-sickening. They had lasted 19 days. And of the original crew of 18, 11 had survived, as well as the Canadian passenger, John Palmer. We were by our kind deliverers conveyed on board the brig where everything was done that could be done to alleviate our miseries. Broths were made for us, but of which, as of water, we were permitted only to partake sparingly. For had we been permitted to eat as much as our appetites craved, it must have proved fatal to us. The captain of the Angernora apparently provided them with uh, quote-unquote brotherly hospitality. So there, there was a, a tradition uh, among sailors uh, to look after each other in, in moments like that. Sixteen days later, on the 6th of January, 1836, the survivors of the Francis Spate landed in Falmouth, England. It was said that they were lodged in the local workhouse and given clothes by local people. So they're brought to the UK, they're brought to Falmouth uh, on the, in the southwest coast of, of England. Richard McMahon. And what's striking is that there's no prosecution. So the case is reported, it's logged as would have been the standard practice with the Board of Trade, but there's no, there's no prosecution. And there's an acceptance that, at least in legal terms, that they have acted correctly and therefore there's no need for a legal prosecution. Statements by the crew of the Francis Spate and the Angerona were given to Devon County Magistrate and no attempt was made whatsoever to conceal what had happened. And on the 8th of January, Captain Timothy Gorman wrote to his employer, the Limerick merchant Francis Spate, telling him of his ship's loss. They're then able to return to Limerick where there's obviously some disquiet about what's happened in the press and also uh, from Patrick O'Brien's family, in particular his mother, is very upset at what's happened, but they don't face legal prosecution. There's an acceptance that they followed the appropriate rituals in that they have drawn lots, they have followed a fair procedure and they have done what they've had to do to survive. In the meantime, we believe that John Palmer was able to return home to Canada from Falmouth, where the men involved in the rescue from the Angerona ship were awarded medals for their bravery. 
And back in Limerick, Francis Spate was relieved that his vessel and cargo were insured, albeit to two-thirds of their value. He immediately set about raising funds for the survivors and the families of those who died by placing ads in the local newspapers seeking donors. It is only necessary to state here that the surviving sufferers have arrived in Limerick in a state of abject wretchedness, and some of them so mutilated by the frost and otherwise rendered helpless as to be unable not only to obtain present bread, but to labour for it during the rest of their lives. They were still in a horrendous state. Sharon Slater. They were wearing borrowed clothes that were too big for them or too small for them or quite raggedy frostbitten fingers and noses so their their hair was grown out, the their faces sunk in but also just the look of shell shock that they had, they had a, a weary look about them when they came back so they would have been noticed as the people who had been on the Francis Spate and who had to endure this appalling tragedy Subscriptions will be thankfully received by Francis Spade Esquire January 23rd I suppose it'd be the equivalent of a, a GoFundMe now, to actually help them. Arlene White. Because a lot of them arrived in such a state that they would never be able to work again. So he was kind of calling on people, you know, like almost trying to get a sympathy vote for them. And he gave £10 himself, which is roughly about fourteen, fifteen hundred €1,500 Euro today. Subscriptions were also raised in the County Clare town of Kilrush, where six of the seven who died on board the ship were from, and eight of the eleven crew who escaped. A letter written to the Clare Herald described the devastation felt there. None but an eyewitness could form an adequate idea of the piteous wailings of the friends and relatives of the young and ill-fated men. For within a space which might be circled in a few minutes' walk, the desolating arm of affliction had fallen heavily, and there was scarcely a house, the sorrowing inmates of which but mourned for one dead. Some of the crew recovered and soon went back to life at sea. Others weren't so lucky. We know that one of the men, another one of the the beings, the Morgan, the last one to survive, about a month after they had arrived back in Limerick, he walked into a shop on Arthur's Quay and he sat down and rested his head on a table and he passed away. So the strain that would have been on him from having not only endured that entire trial, but also possibly seeing one of his brothers thrown overboard and then another one of his brothers sacrificed to save his life, you know, would have taken such a huge toll on him mentally and physically. The tragedy didn't seem to have much effect on the career of the ship's captain, Timothy Gorman. Although he would have had the tragedy of this under his captainship, he was still a captain and that was still a very important role and to get to that stage in in a career. Shipwrecks were often, shipwrecks were very common. It would have been very rare a captain not to have a shipwreck under their belt at that stage. By late March 1836, Gorman was setting sail again for the New World in another ship owned by Francis Spate, the Borneo. When he returned to Limerick that summer, he was confronted by the distressed mother of the late apprentice, Patrick O'Brien. She found herself in legal trouble when she tried to get answers about what happened her son. Captain Gorman said that he had had no peace for the last week on account of the defendant. 
who threatens to take away his life and his children's as well. Patrick O'Brien's mother is actually one of the few people to be prosecuted as a result of this case. So she's brought before the courts and she's bound over to keep the peace. And this is because there are complaints that she has been threatening the life of uh, the ship's captain, Timothy Gorman, and also has been assailing Francis Spate himself, turning up at his house, crying, demanding uh, to be heard and to find out what's happened to her son. So she's actually brought before the courts, whereas those who had uh, eaten her son are not subject to criminal prosecution. She herself is bound over to keep the peace. But old-fashioned attitudes about violent acts like the custom of the sea were beginning to change. What is striking is that there's a growing critique of this. And you can see this in some of the Limerick papers, like the Limerick Star, that are raising questions about the legitimacy of what's happened on on board the Francis Spate. So you almost have a clash of two worlds. The old world, where it's legitimate, it's the custom of the sea, you have to do what you have to do to survive, and a new sensitivity, a doubt, a questioning of whether this is really appropriate and a nervousness and an uncomfortable feeling around things like cannibalism for survival at sea. Public perceptions around violence at sea eventually changed in the 1880s in the case of a yacht called the Mignonette, whose captain, Dudley, was convicted of the murder of one of his crew after he resorted to cannibalism to survive. And indeed, I'd say it's likely that sea captains and sailors would have been aware of the Francis Spate and other cases where there were no prosecutions. And that's why someone like Dudley is so shocked. He returns and gives a very frank, honest account of what he's had to do to survive at sea. The shock for him is that this leads to his prosecution. And so in the back of his mind must have been cases like Spate and other cases from earlier in the century where no prosecutions had occurred. Little is known about how the lives of the survivors of the Francis Spate worked out in later years or how the families of those who died coped with the loss of their loved ones and their livelihoods. But we do know that captain of the ship, Timothy Gorman, continued to have a successful career at sea. He continues to work for Spate and continues to work on transatlantic trade routes, delivering migrants a lot of the time to North America and then returning with goods, in particular timber, uh, to, to Ireland. Captain Gorman later moved to Dublin, and despite his seafaring adventures, he died on shore in 1874 in his late 70s. He's buried in an unmarked grave in Deansgrange Cemetery. Owner of the ship, the Limerick merchant Francis Spate, who the ship was named after, didn't seem to suffer any consequences in the aftermath either. When he died in 1861, he was laid to rest in the grandness of the Spate family vault near Port Rue in County Tipperary. The Francis Spate ship itself survived the tragedy of 1835. Six months later, it was found drifting close to the Canary Islands and towed ashore. The Francis Spate ship was salvaged because it had been waterlogged, but apparently it had never fully sunk and it was re-registered in London in 1838 and continued to sail after that. Under new ownership, but keeping its name, it went on to sail to places like India and New Zealand, but met its end in 1846 in Table Bay, South Africa, 
when it was driven ashore in a storm. Back on the quays of Limerick, there's an anchor monument to remember the lives of those lost at sea and a statue to commemorate the dockers who worked in the port. William Griffiths, Patrick Cusick, John Gorman. The story of the ill-fated journey of the Francis Spate forms part of the folklore of the city. And a story is told that Limerick seamen were often asked at foreign ports if they were from the crew who ate the cabin boy. Daniel Sullivan, John Murphy, Jan Sheehan. And almost 200 years later, why should we remember these men and their most unusual story of survival? It's important to remember those moments of human endurance because it shows where the edges of humanity and what people will do to survive and what people have to do to survive as well. James Horgan, John Manny. Yes, there were these people who were sacrificed so that the others could survive, but the others survived, whereas this story shows that they wanted to survive. Even the people who were sacrificed wanted to survive. They all fought hard to figure out how they were going to get back home. James Gorman, Thomas Crean, Patrick O'Brien, 